Let me ask you to stand with me one more time as we read our text this morning. 1 Timothy 5, 3-16. And we'll pick up where we did last week. 1 Timothy 5, 3-16 this morning. Read this with me together in unison. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, has washed the feet of saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Thank you. Please be seated. We've been working our way through this very important letter of 1 Timothy. And as you know, the main point of the letter of 1 Timothy is that the church would know how to behave in its calling. God has called us to be His his family. We are the household of God, Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 3 and verse 15. We are the church of the living God. We we have the Spirit of God living in us. And because of those things, then our role becomes clear. Because of our identity, our role becomes clear. In the world, we're then called the, the truth, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Meaning, we are the organization that God has ordained in this world to hold fast the truth. He has called us to defend and keep the truth pure. And then also to proclaim it, to hold it high. And so one of the ways that Paul has instructed Timothy to do that is is how he he calls people to treat one another in the body of Christ. And so in in chapter 5, there's a few groups of people that Paul has been instructing Timothy. This is how we ought to behave toward these people. So the first two verses in chapter 5 dealt with how 
we treat one another when we're, when we're sinning? How do, we, how do we confront an older man, an older woman, a younger man, a younger woman? So Paul gave us instruction about those things, about encouraging one another to walk in holiness. And then the second section here, verses 3-16, through 16, the Apostle Paul instructs Timothy about how the church is to relate to widows. How do we care for widows? How do we meet their needs? And who actually is a true widow, as Paul defines here in this text? And so this, this particular text can be nicely divided into two categories in a sense, although these do overlap, as you can see. That Paul talks about widows who need to be supported financially by the church. They're supported widows. And then there's another category of widows that he, we could call serving widows, those who are on the list, as Paul talks about. We'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. But there is probably some overlap between those groups. There's probably some supported widows who are also serving widows, but not necessarily that supported widows would be serving widows. So we're going to look at both of these categories, and right now we're just focusing on that first part in verses 3-8. through What is the godly behavior toward widows who need support? And so again, we look at this and how, and how this is all an overflow of God's own character in the Scriptures. God has declared Himself to be a God full of mercy and compassion. He loves to see those who are in great need and lift them up. For example, Psalm 68, 4-6 says, Sing to God, sing praises to His name, lift up a song to Him who rides the desert. His name is the Lord. Exult before Him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. And we also noticed last week, and this is going to be a bit of a review here for a few minutes, God's heart and care for widows overflows into how Israel was to behave toward their widows. Deuteronomy 14, 28-29 says, At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled. So there was a a way that was provided right into the government work of of Israel that that people would bring their tithes and make sure there was something to care for those who didn't have, especially those widows. And then, again, God's heart overflows not only into the behavior of Israel, but also in the life of Christ. Luke 7, 11-15, we see Jesus raising the son of the widow of Nain. Why? Well, she was a widow. She had no one to care for her. And then her son, who most likely was the one who was caring for her, dies. And so, Jesus meets her need by raising her son back to life. Mark 12, 38-44, Jesus rebukes the religious leaders who are taking advantage of widows. He wants them to be cared for. And then capping it all off, John 19, 26-27, while Jesus is dying on the cross, He makes sure to care for His widowed mother and that His apostle John would take her into His own home. We see the heart of God toward widows overflowing then into the life of the early church. Acts 6, 1-6 
shows us the apostles who made a sizable and strategic ministry decision and development to care for the widows in the Jerusalem church. In Acts 9, we see Peter raising Tabitha or Dorcas from the dead, who was a godly woman who apparently cared for widows in her fellowship. And then James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So to, to care for widows in a unique and special way is the biblical theology that we see as we walk through Scripture. It's, it's what is there overflowing from God's heart. So how are we to respond to that? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us, this is the main idea here, Honor widows who are truly widows. The church is to take up this ministry as well and make it a priority. So, why do we do this? And just a few things to notice as we look in the text. Certainly, it's commanded here. Honor widows who are truly widows. The Apostle Paul says, command these things very clearly. He also makes note that it is very important for the testimony of the church that they care for widows. Look what he says at the end of verse 14. We're to do this so that we give no adversary, the, the adversary no occasion for slander. Make sure widows are cared for and functioning in these ways. This is part of the reason. Or then, even in the end of verse 16, we care for widows and we, we do it in such a way that the church is not burdened with those who would not need the church's care so that it can give its care for those who are truly widows. And again, why is this important to live this way with widows? Well, I think it's important because as we do this, as we are obedient to this text, we reflect the zealously compassionate heart of our Heavenly Father. Secondly, we live in harmony with the purposes of God for His family. Israel, His own Son, the early church. We live in submission to the Holy Spirit who has assembled us. This is His will. This is His work. Um, We function in so doing as the pillar and buttress of the truth. We live this way so that we can demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. This ministry to widows demonstrates the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, what do you mean by that? Listen to this. Deuteronomy 24, 17-22 is one of the instructions in the Old Testament for Israel to care for their widows. And twice in this section it says this, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt And the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Do you see the connection? I want you to treat widows this way because I treated you this way. I went into Egypt and with my powerful and mighty arm provided for you to come out and be set free from your bondage. Verse 22 is the same thing. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So God tells His people, honor true widows because of what I did for you to bring you out of your slavery to the land of Egypt. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, how, how helpless were the people in Egypt? 
They had no provision to come out. They, had no, they, they were enslaved to their, to their affliction. And God pulled them out and rescued them with a mighty arm. And that's why God says, therefore, you do this for the, for the widow. Our Father says to His church, honor true widows because of what I have done for you to bring you out of slavery to sin. And so we, we illustrate what God has done for us in Christ by how we honor widows, how we preserve their care. We, we proclaim the Gospel in that way. And so that's why Paul says, honor widows who are truly widows. Now, the main question that this text answers is, which widows? Any widows? Every widow? How do we do this? What are the qualifications? And so number one, last week we talked about this already. We're to care, the church as, a, as an entity, as an assembly, is to care for widows who have no support from their family. And so point A, as you can follow in your outline, we looked at this, is that children and grandchildren have the primary responsibility. We see family caring for widows like Ruth and Naomi in the Scripture. Boaz, the nearest kinsman redeemer, took Ruth and made, him, made her his, his wife and then through her cared for Naomi. And so the, Paul commands the children and grandchildren to care for their widowed parent and, 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 and he accompanies that command here in verse, verse 4 with some strong encouragement. He says, learn to show godliness at home, family. <laughs> Make some return to your parents. Give back what they've given to you in your years of childhood. And he says that's pleasing in the sight of God. You can see these motivations right here. First, learn to show godliness to your own household. Make a return. This is pleasing in the sight of God. And then Paul goes on to show that letter B in your outline the other relatives have the secondary responsibility. Maybe a widow doesn't have any children or grandchildren. Well, who are supposed to take care of them then? Extended family. And um, we see that here in verses 7 through 8, particularly. If anyone, verse 8, does not provide for his relatives, speaking of this situation of meeting the widow's needs, if anyone doesn't provide, especially for the members of his own household, He's denied the faith and is worse an unbeliever. So Paul commands these things in this situation with more extended family, and he accompanies this command with two strong warnings. If, if you don't take care of your widows and your family, it's like denying the faith and being worse an unbeliever. Well, how does that even make sense? Well, to refuse widows the care they need is to turn your back on the character of God, right? All through Scripture. It's to turn your back on the character of God's chosen people, on the pattern of Christ, on the pattern of the early church, the, the merciful and compassionate love that care embodies, that, that, that the, widow, the widow needs. It's to it's turn your back on the picture of redemption that such care communicates. And Paul says, if a person does that, they're worse than an unbeliever. Well, how is that? To refuse widows the care they need is to behave at a level below that of an unbeliever because even unbelievers have created laws to care for widows. Even all through history it has been so. And so we are to honor widows who are truly widows. Okay, the primary responsibility is to children and grandchildren. If that's not happening, it could be that they don't have children or maybe their children are unbelievers and refuse to help them. 
Well, then extended family can. Again, if that's not happening, and this widow is truly left helpless, then let her see the church has the tertiary responsibility. And we see that then again at the end of verse 16. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Those are the widows, as it says here in verse 5, who are left all alone. No children and grandchildren to care for her, or they refuse to. No extended family who will do that. Well, we can't let them be alone. They must then be cared for. As God's family, we're to make sure that widows in their vulnerable position have their spiritual and physical needs met according to God's will. That doesn't mean we can't make use of the things that are provided often today, like life insurance or military benefits or pensions. Those are things that are great. Maybe a widow can even work a job. Great. Well, it doesn't mean we don't watch over them still and say, all right, they got all their needs met. Right? No family to help. We're going we're gonna to be careful to watch over them. And I, I must also say that both the family and the church may employ services even of professional geriatric care. Right? I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that can be used in, in days where it is fitting. But under no circumstances are we to simply drop off a, a widow or any parent for that matter to that care and just forget about them as if they're not even there. I think it's important that we honor widows who are truly widows. And certainly this is a reflection of that fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. I think that's part of what Paul is referring to in this text. Now, let's move on to some new material this morning. The question that Paul answers clearly is, which widow then? Again, not every woman who has lost her husband to death is a true widow meaning one that requires the church support. So, number two in your outline, what are the qualifications for being a church-supported widow? She must be godly. She must be godly. Well, what does that mean then? Well, this is where we need to look at verses 5 and 6, and that's what we'll finish for the rest of our time this morning. Letter A, she is all alone. She is all alone. And really, this is a summary of what he's been saying. No family, right? There to take care of her. But let's talk about the word widow for a moment. The word widow, just by itself, refers to someone who is destitute. The word means that. Someone who's destitute or deprived, desolate, deficient. The word is actually derived from another word that means a gaping opening, an opening, a chasm, a gulf. There's a big void in this person's life that's left empty. It's a huge vacuum, right, in the life of a widow that has been created by the loss of her husband. The husband is called to provide for her financially and to, and to pr- protect her, care for her spiritually as well. And the reason I'm bringing some focus onto the meaning of the widow, that would, the meaning of the word widow, that would seem so obvious to us is because this word itself doesn't inherently indicate, if you were to look up this word in the dictionary, or shall I say a Greek dictionary, doesn't inherently indicate how this woman lost her husband. Because of that, some godly Bible commentators or teachers have concluded that this word could also indicate 
a faithful woman whose husband abandoned her. A faithful woman whose husband is in prison even. Or such other circumstance that would leave her alone and without provision. And I have to say, I'm not convinced of that position, but I want you to be aware of it. And as you read and study and come across this theme in your own Bible study and reading, I'm open to hearing and reading more about this. And the main reason I'm not convinced that a widow means anything other than a woman whose husband has died is because of all the texts that I've been exposed to throughout Scripture. You read the Scriptures from cover to cover, you you get the overwhelming sense that this word, though you could look it up in a dictionary and find more of a generic sense, this word seems to inherently mean a woman who's lost her husband because he's died. So I believe from the usage of the word in Scripture that a widow means a woman who is destitute, deprived, desolate, deficient, because her husband has died. And again, that's important because if we, if we do believe it means a woman whose husband is in prison or deserted her, that would, that would greatly alter the scope of the church's responsibilities, right? So it's something to consider for sure, but I don't think the Scripture would convince us of that position. Now, we make a qualification here. It doesn't mean that individual Christians can't reach out and help someone in that position. And we should. But this text is talking about something more specific than that. This text is talking about what the, who the church must be willing to financially support if they need it. That's a big deal, right? So I just want to make that clarification. And again, you can think of examples all throughout the, the Scriptures who people who are referred to as widows, Tamar, Ruth, Naomi, the widow of Zarephath, Anna, the widow of Nain, etc. They're all women whose husband has died. So I think that's very important for understanding exactly what Paul is talking about. Now, the Apostle Paul goes on to show us what kind of widow must be supported by the church. We've already talked about the first one here, left all alone, no family to support them. But let her be there in your outline under number two. She must be a widow who has set her hope on God. What does that mean? Now, now that, again, also greatly defines and, and, and um, clarifies who the church is to support. When Paul says a true widow is one who has set her hope on God, most certainly indicates that she has been born again. She's a believer. She's a true Christian. She's a true follower of Jesus Christ. And I like the, how, how Paul says this particular verb, she has set her hope on God. The verb indicates that at some previous time she began to set her hope on God. And that hope has continued. It's continued. And, it, and it's remained steadfast. And it's an ongoing, settled commitment in her life. She has set her hope on God. That's, that's who she is. It defines her. She's placed her hope on the person and work of Christ and the promises of God for her forgiveness and righteousness and eternal life. And, and, and since she has placed her hope on God for the greater provision of spiritual and eternal life, then she has also most certainly placed her hope on God for the lesser provisions of her earthly life. 
A widow who has set her hope on God means that, that she has persevered in trusting God to meet her needs in this life, no matter what has happened to her, no, no matter how destitute she feels. It's not that she's perfect and she never fears or doubts or trembles, but that this is the, this is the pattern of her life. This is the overall trajectory of her existence. She hopes in God. And, and she refuses to abandon Christ or His truth, or, or His church, no matter how difficult her circumstances have been. There's more people than we'd like to remember or count that have abandoned Christ and truth because of very difficult situations, right? But not this widow. She has refused to become faithless. She's fought against her own doubts and fears. She's refused even to become sinful in the pursuit of getting her needs met. She has refused to pursue earthly provisions in ways that are disobedient to her Heavenly Father. And this is particularly meaningful in Paul's culture because there wasn't all kinds of jobs opened for a widow. And so very often, someone left without a husband would turn to the only source of provision that they knew, and that was to being a prostitute. Well, thank God now we have, we have lots of jobs for, for, for widowed ladies, and that's a great blessing from Him. But even still, that woman refuses to pursue earthly provisions in ways that are disobedient to her Heavenly Father. Instead, she continues to hope in Him to meet her needs. Like the widow of Zarephath. Remember that story? What a great story that is. God told Elijah to go and during a time of famine, remember when when God sent a famine through the word of Elijah to Israel because they had worshipped the false god. Well, God sends Elijah to this widow woman, Zarephath, and to, get his, to get a meal from her. And he finds her gathering some sticks and she's got just a little bit of meal left and a little bit of oil. And we tell our kids this back in Sunday school and you kind of forget some of these stories sometimes. What a, what a wonderful story of faith in God's provision. Well, Elijah says to this woman, make me a meal. And she goes, well, this is all I've got. I'm literally making a meal for my son and I, our last meal. I'm gathering some sticks. I've got a, one, one bit of cornmeal left or whatever kind of meal it was and, and oil. And, and Elijah says to her, well, make it for me first. You, you, you provide this meal for me and hopefully it'll work out for you. You know, I mean, it's, it's a really uncomfortable setting there. And she does. She trusts God's word through the prophet. And of course, all through that famine, then following, the meal bag never ran out, right? And the oil never was empty. And God provided for her all the way through. That, that's a wonderful story of hoping in God, isn't it? And put yourself in that situation. This is all I have. There's, there's no mire, right? There's no mire to go to and get some more. I mean, you, you made your own, right? And she trusts God, and God meets her needs. See, that's, that's the kind of widow that Paul says the church must support. She's alone, but she's setting her hope on God. And then let her see in her outline, the next part of the text, she continues in supplications and prayers night and day. 
supplications, prayers, night and day. This widow expresses her faith and hope in God through continual prayer. Notice the consistency of her prayers. Night and day. Night and day. Continuing. With each and every challenging circumstance. Through long nights, days of waiting on the Lord. And notice the two kinds of praying that fill her nights and days. Supplications. And prayers. Supplications. Remember that word? It's a good biblical word for a beggar. Right? A beggar. This is a request that comes from extreme need. Indigence. Privation. With each need, she has learned to seek, entreat, beg, plead with God to meet her needs. And she has, been, she has seen God answer her supplications in love, and therefore prayer has become a way of life for her. Dear ones, when you hit difficult times, and man, we don't know a lot about difficult times nowadays, but when you hit difficult times, it's like you, you begin to pray for everything. God, I, I, I'm not sure where my next meal is coming from. Some of you know about this. I'm looking on your faces. You know about, God, I need my next meal. God, my child is sick and I have nothing. We, we, don't, we don't know what it's like to have nothing. Well, this widow has learned some of that. And she has taken to the way of life that, that begs God for everything in her day. That's the way she lives. She lives dependent on God. And, and prayers... She doesn't just beg God, she also prays. This is a general word for prayer. I think it's important because it includes more than asking for the things you need. It's, it's worship, it's communion, it's praise, it's thanksgiving, it's adoration. This widow has learned to bring her needs before the Lord, but and it isn't too proud to beg, but her needs have not so consumed her prayer life that they keep her from praising and thanksgiving and loving God who has promised to be her husband and who so faithfully has met her needs. You see, we have so many human resources available to us nowadays that when, when those human resources are in abundance, we trust in them instead of trusting in the Lord. And when those human resources are taken away, how do we feel? We become very anxious, right? We need to confess our sin of fear and anxiety and worry to the Lord. Those sins are, are truly a denial of the power and love of God to provide for His children. We need to take those sins to the cross and rest in the, right, in the Christ's righteousness and sacrifice in our place. And we need to learn to exercise godly hope in the Lord that is born by the Spirit in our lives when all human resources are taken away from us. Our lack does not bind the plans or abilities of God in the least. I mean, I, I, we read those stories of, of people that, that are set before us as godly examples. Like we think of someone like George Mueller, right, who had nothing to feed all these children, and, and, and he began with prayer, and God provided for them all the time. We don't know what it's like to live like that. When we read about it, we sort of envy it, right, secretly. I would love to see how, but, but, you read about and envy it after you know the provision has come. Right? But what if we learn to live like that? And we don't know where the provisions are coming from. And we still hope in God and pray. This widow that Paul is describing has learned to hope in God like that. 
she's learned to hope in God from her absolute poverty. And in her absolute poverty, she begs and prays the Lord to meet her need. And He does. This is the kind of widow Paul commands the church to support. She's like Anna in Luke 2, 36-38. Anna wasn't married for very long. Remember how many years she was married? Seven years. And then what did she do with the rest of her life? She was 86 years old. Right? So she was married for just a short time and then she went to the temple and, and it says that she did not part, depart from the temple worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. That same phrase. Right? And coming up at every hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to Him of all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. There's a, this is a wonderful, wonderful point here to consider. This is a woman who hopes in God. And, and one other point here I want to mention about this phrase, supplications and prayers. Notice that prayers is in the plural. right? Supplications and prayers and that could, some commentators point out that that could be a word that is referring to the prayers of the gathered church. Because that's how you see them in the New Testament. For example, Acts 2.42, they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and what? The prayers. So it could be that this is also referring to a, a widow who is committed to the assembly of the church. She's faithful to gather with the body of Christ and give her heart and passions to the, to the prayers of the assembled people of God, just like Anna was. She also has learned to trust God to meet her needs through the Spirit-filled fellow believers of the local church, just as the New Testament demonstrates that He will faithfully do. And that's an experience that many of us have experienced, right? How many times in your life, you keep a journal, right? How many times has God met your needs through another believer in the body of Christ? Too many to count. God meets our needs through one another. He's so good in that way. And so she has learned to do that as well, this widow. In fact, it seems that to be that the pattern of the New Testament is that each local church is called to be responsible for the widows that are committed to that particular local community of faith. That's important. There's no way that one little local church can care for all of the widows in their town. That's impossible, right? It's those that are committed to their gathering, their, their community of faith. And you see that also in the Old Testament instructions that we read earlier, where, where, where God tells Israel, you meet the, the, the widows of those who are in your towns. He wasn't calling the, the people of Israel to all of a sudden create this huge drive to feed the widows of all the surrounding nations. Right? It was the people of their own towns. Each town gathered for their own widows. And that's important. You know them personally. Well, you should, right? And you, and you pray for them and you watch over them. And that's consistent. We see that with the, the, the example of the New Testament church in Acts 6. The widows there of the Jerusalem church. 1 Peter 5, 1-4, notice this, commands elders to shepherd the flock of God. Notice this next phrase, that is in their midst. That's important. There's no way elders can care for an entire community of people or even people from other local churches. They're called to shepherd and counsel and provide and protect for those who are committed 
to their assembly. That is so important. Otherwise, elders will be distracted and run far too thin and nobody's needs to be met properly. Doesn't that make sense? And that's why Peter says that. Shepherd the flock of God that is in their midst, which would certainly include caring for widows in their local assembly. And so Paul has described for us here in clear terms what kind of widow is to be supported by the church. Alone, hoping in God, and prayerful. And then finally, there's two negative commands here or a comparison uh, that would describe widows that that, that we would not be to support. Verse 6, but in contrast to the widow who is hoping in God and praying, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So two things to note here. Letter D. The kind of widow the church is not to support is the one who would be self-indulgent. So we just put it this way in the outline. She is not to be self-indulgent. The widow that the church is to support is not to be self-indulgent. What, is, what does that word mean? Self-indulgent. Well, it means given to pleasure. Sensual pleasures. Selfish pleasures even to live luxuriously or voluptuously. The key word in that definition is given to, really. Given to pleasure. She's consumed by this. Seems to me that this widow is trying, in the legitimate grief of losing her husband, to sinfully console herself by excessively giving herself to the momentary satisfaction of earthly, material, and sensual things, even sinful things. And that's something each one of us have experienced temptations to. When we've experienced a loss, isn't it so easy to indulge in something else? To try to seek a comfort in some way that is temporary and earthly? Well, that could be what this widow's doing. And so she's become a self-indulgent person. She has turned the loss of her husband into an excuse and license to intoxicate herself with worldly pleasures. The church is not to support a widow who is self-indulgent. And living for self-indulgence as she does, Paul also indicates that this kind of widow is what? Dead. Even while she lives, she's spiritually dead. She's not a believer and her life indicates that. Letter E, she is not to be spiritually dead. The church is not to support a widow who is an unbeliever, or as Paul writes here, spiritually dead. Again, this is not to say that individual Christians must never give some financial help on some occasion to a widow who is an unbeliever. That can be a very good and helpful thing. But what this text is talking about is that that the local church must not commit to take on an unbelieving, self-indulgent widow for ongoing support by the assembly. But what does it mean when we say spiritually dead? Dead while she lives. That's kind of an interesting term. An interesting description here. She's dead while she lives. and I think it's one we need to take very seriously. Ephesians 2, 1-3 describes someone who God considers is dead while they live. Someone who is spiritually dead while they're physically alive. It's very important for us to understand this. Listen to this. It says, And you were dead 
in trespasses and sins. Paul writes this to the readers of Ephesians. Actually, the same church that, that he's writing to in 1 Timothy. You were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now here's a description of what it means to be dead. What it looks like to be dead while you're physically alive. Following the course of the world. The step and the path that the world indicates is the way to go. The world system. That's the way we live. That's to be spiritually dead. Following the prince of the power of the air. right? Taking your cues from the evil one. Living by his passions. And the passions of the world. What, what makes me feel good. What makes me look good to others. What brings me praise from other people. That, that's how John describes the desires of the world. To live according to those desires is to be spiritually dead while you live physically. That's the tune of the Pied Piper, as it were. The evil one. The prince of the power of the air. That's the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Right? It's it, To live according to this tune, to live according to this course is to is to walk in disobedience to the will of God and not care about it at all. To be ignorant, to be happily ignorant of God's law, as it were. To say no to His will and His Word. But look what it says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived. Now this isn't just talking about some people who are born and others who aren't like this. No, everyone's born this way. And then we're born again. As we trust in Christ. But... To be spiritually dead means that we live according to the passions of our flesh. Living by what feels good and, and, and pleases me and brings me praise from other people. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. right? Living by bodily cravings. Living by the pride and the, and the recognition that your mind demands. And what does it call us there again? By nature, we are children of wrath. That is the destination of those who are spiritually dead. They follow the course of the world. They follow the prince of the power of the air. They live according to disobedience to God's Word. They they are ruled by the passions of their body. They're carried by the desires of their mind. And the end of that way of life is the wrath of God. That's the way it is. If unchanged, that is the end. Like the rest of mankind. That's that's who we all are apart from Christ. So that's the widow described there. Self-indulgent. Dead while she lives. And the widow doesn't need, that kind of widow doesn't need support from the church. What does she need? She needs to be born again. Right? It would be better for her to lose her earthly provisions and hit rock bottom even to be on the street and through that calamity to gain her soul by salvation in Jesus Christ than for her to temporarily get back some of the material things of the world that she lost but never feel her true spiritual condition and consequently lose her own soul to hell forever. Right? That's... 
That's the sacrifice that, that really makes sense from an eternal perspective. Like Jesus said, what is it profit if a person gains the whole world and loses their soul? Right? This life is so short. Eternity is forever. And what that widow needs is to be born again, born of God, born again. She being self-indulgent is dead while she lives. This describes the widow that the church is not to support in contrast to the godly widow who is described by hoping in God and continuing in prayer night and day. As we close this morning, I want to just take a moment and look at that phrase again. I want to ask you a question. Are, are any of you here this morning like that widow? Self-indulgent and dead while she lives. I'm not asking if you're a widow. I'm asking if you're spiritually dead still. And you recognize it. Have you thought about that? We don't like those kinds of dis- those texts that describe our true spiritual condition. Does it describe you? Again, like I said, this, this text of Ephesians 2, in fact, describes everyone who is not born of God and forgiven of their sin. The text describes all of us before we come to Christ. If you were... Just be totally honest. Look at your life. What rules your life? Are you walking? You look back on your life from day to day as a whole pattern, as a big picture. You look on your life. Are you being ruled by what the world says or the Word of God? Can you see that? What rules your heart? What tells you what to say and do and how to fill your time. What rules your heart? Are you living by the desires of your body and the, the, the proud craving that your mind desires? Or are you living by the words of God? What rules you? Is your life filled with disobedience to the Word of God or is your life filled with a a growing desire to walk in submission to the Word of God? You see, if if you can look at that phrase, those, those who are born of God, those who are Christians, look at that phrase, look at those verses and they think, that's who I was. It's so clear that's who I was. But I've been changed. And I'm, I'm not perfect. And this is what the Christian would say as they look at this text. And I, and I fail in many ways, but I'm growing out of that. I'm learning to, to be ruled by God's Word and the Holy Spirit instead of the passions of my flesh and the, and the commands of the world. So where are you? Do you look at that and you say, that's who I was? Or do you look at that and you say, that's who I am? That's, all, that's the only options. Realize that? If someone looks at that and says, I never was like that, and I'm still not like that, then you haven't even begun to understand what spiritual life and death are about. You look at that and say, that's who I was. But Christ has saved me. Then, then you're, not, you're not spiritually dead anymore. If you look at that and you say, yeah, I, I think that's what my life is like. Then you need verses 4 and 5. Because right after that it says this, but God, being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's what you need. If you look at that text today and you say, that's me. You need the grace of God. The grace of God that takes spiritually people who are, who are spiritually dead and raises them. You can't, you can't do that for yourself. Only the Spirit of God can do that to you. And God is rich in mercy. He, he longs to rescue you from, from that condition and give you spiritual life. Is that what you want? Then you can have it. If you want it, get it by the grace of God. And if, and if that's something you desire to know and understand more about how you can be born again, how you can be made spiritually alive, then please talk with me. I can connect you with someone who can help you walk through the Scriptures about this and learn how to trust in Jesus. How God can make you alive together with Christ. It's the most important thing in the world. Jesus Christ has done everything needed for your salvation. And you can be united with Him by faith and be given the gift of eternal life. Today, that can be yours. And for our church family who is, who is already born of God, who verses 4 and 5 have already happened to, I want you to think about this with me as we close today. We have, we have some thoughts to consider as we honor widows. We see some qualifications here for discerning which widows are to be supported. And the Holy Spirit means this text for us, doesn't He? This is for us. This is for us too. If we have widows in our families, let's make sure they're honored. That's where we start with this text, right? Have you ever stopped to think about that? Do I have any widows in my family? Even in my extended family? Are they cared for? And, And if we discover that our assembly, that in our assembly there are widows who are truly alone, but yet hoping in God and prayerful, not self-indulgent, not spiritually dead, we need to make sure that they're honored and supported. That's the call of this text. And by the grace of God and the power of the risen Christ, let's make this a priority together. And we're going to be thinking about this over the next days. And, And may the Lord give us insight as to how we can do this. Here's a few suggestions of how we can begin just very quickly. We can begin by confessing our self-centeredness to the Lord. Not even thinking about these things is often a result of a heart that, that doesn't notice the needs of others. Doesn't work to meet the needs of others unless it gives us some sort of return. We can confess that. That's, that kind of heart is still remnant in all of us. Rest in Christ's provisions to cover our sin and transform us. And then what we can do is, is pray Pray by name and by need for the widows in our extended family, in our church family. We can pray for them. Do you pray for the widows of this church by name and by need? Actively watch over them. This is a family effort. Watch over them and identify their spiritual and physical needs. If necessary, advocate to their family as needed to help meet their needs. And then finally, make financial preparations as a church to personally and corporately meet the needs of any true widow that God brings to us. This 
This kind of ministry calls us to really seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness with our finances, doesn't it? Even on an individual level. Are we ready to do this sort of thing? As God opens the opportunity? Are we ready as a, as a corporate church? Well, these are things we need to be, to be careful to think through and pray for and prepare for. Whenever God chooses to bring us a true widow, let's be like our Father. Let's show our community the God of the Gospel. The God who is our kinsman redeemer. This is why the ministry to widows is a priority to God. It shows the world how the family of God loves one another. It, it, it demonstrates that we're the pillar and buttress of the truth. May the Lord enable us as we pray over these things. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's pray about this together. <clears throat> Father, you's, you've begun to show us some things that are somewhat new, at least to my thinking. And I pray that you would lead us each step of the way. May we be careful and prayerful and prepared to minister to true widows. Father, help us to recognize them when you bring them to us. And may it be truly a demonstration of your love and compassion in, this, in the world and to, to one another. And we pray, Father, that if there is someone here or listening online today that is spiritually dead, would you help them to see that they are? Father, it's, it's, it's such a difficult thing. We have no power over our own spiritual salvation. You have all power over that. And so often those who are those who are well, those who are already brought to life realize that they were spiritually dead. And so often those who are spiritually dead don't realize it. Father, help them to see. If that text describes them, help them to see, Father. And, and may they also then see Your mercy and Your grace through Jesus Christ and His life and death and resurrection for them that they can be united with Him by faith and have His righteousness as their own and His death as their own and His resurrection life as their own. They can be raised and know You and fellowship with You and love You and live with You forever. Father, please open our eyes and do this good work. For your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name.